Uh, good morning, church. Uh, just want to share a couple things before we jump into the message. Uh, next Sunday, I'll be out um, going to California for a few days to uh, be at my friend's memorial. Um, some of you guys remember me sharing that a couple weeks ago. Um, I do want to thank um, many of you who chipped in to pay for a ticket for me. I want to thank you for being Christ to me in that way. It's very kind uh, of you. Um, so I just want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart. Um, it will be a very full time there as I'll be speaking to the youth at our, my former church and also speaking in the service that day. Um, and so I'll be preaching out of First Peter 3 about being born again to a living hope. And the coolest thing is that the Lord guards us from sex or keeps us or takes us. And so, in one sense, uh, the gospel is that once your ticket and And so, that's what I'll be talking about out there. So you can remember me in prayer and I'll remember you from the West Coast. Um, today, we good thing that God can you know, fulfill all his ministry around the world through prayer in that way. Um, today we'll be starting a new series entitled um, Blueprints, or Blueprint um, to a Gospel-Shaped Church. The long and short of it is we're talking about life in the Father's house through First Timothy. I don't know how long we'll be in this book for, maybe four or five months or something like that. Um, so that's what's happening, and so you'll be hearing from John and Sean in the next week. So let's pray, Father. We thank you for an opportunity to introduce this book literally specifically uh, about your church and your design for your church, that your church would be in accordance to your word, um, your church would be healthy and thriving and being built up in the right way, um, in the long and short of it, I'll just borrow Mark Tever's words, that we as a church would make the gospel visible through um, the life of the local church. And so Father, we pray Lord that you would open our eyes and ears to hear and to know um, your design and will um, for your, your church and what it look like uh, for us here um, at the corner of Research and Harrison. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, some of you may be familiar with blueprints. I don't know. Yes, a little bit. Have ever seen blueprints somewhere? A lot of times they're used for, uh, as designs for, for buildings or condos or apartments. Um, most familiar with the blueprints used for the Death Star, because um, I thought it was cool, and like, yeah, this is how you destroy the Death Star, right? You need to go shoot the little torpedo down the middle, something blows up. But seriously, um, in First and Second Timothy, God gives his divine blueprints for his church. And so that's simply what we're looking at. This morning, I'm literally just introducing this book, giving you background information about what's the situation, who's the author, when it's written, and this kind of <coughs> highlights um, the situation that's going on here. So that's what's happened today, and then we will have communion, and Pastor Dylan will be presiding over that. But we'll just begin with some background. The title of this book comes from literally the first opening verses that Phil read earlier. Um, the title of the book of Timothy is Timothy. Um, we know that because the in internal evidence of the book in First Timothy chapter 1, verse 2, it literally says, that Timothy is being addressed um, in this book. We also know that Paul wrote this book, and Paul wrote it um, after his release from his first imprisonment around 62-64 AD. And the setting of this book is, <coughs> again, after Paul's 
released from um, Roman imprisonment. We see that in Acts 28, verse 30. And so now Paul is in Macedonia, where he wrote this book to Timothy, who, <coughs> excuse me, where Timothy is a pastor at the church of Ephesus. And so the long and short of this is Paul is writing a letter to Timothy as a young pastor and how to lead and how to establish and how to strengthen the local church that Timothy finds himself out at the church of Ephesus. So if you want to get the flip side of the church that Timothy is ministering at, you read the book of Ephesians, right? It makes sense. And <coughs> so we're going to move to the next session. Besides the background, look at the author. Who, who is the person that wrote this book? And so in verse 2, it's pretty straight, or verse 1 is very straightforward. It literally declares that Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the command of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope. So we're going to get this verse, break it down. But um, I want you to see that it is Paul who wrote this book. And so as you think through, like, you might be like, new to the church, and like, who is Paul? Well, we see in this passage itself that we know that Paul is an apostle. Uh, Paul is a messenger, um, a spokesman of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's speaking on behalf or for Jesus. He's speaking the words of Jesus. He's a, an apostle of Jesus. Um, and we know that Paul is one disciple of 14, um, in addition to the 12 disciples. But we also know Jesus, uh, Judas defected and Matthias was replaced by, uh, replaced later on in the book of Acts. But the long and short of it, the apostles were called by God to preach the gospel in the first century, to perform miracles and to spread the gospel. But how else are we to know about Paul, the apostle? Well, the key is to look at the history and of the new church. And if you go to the book of Acts, where I want you to open your Bibles at this time, or turn them on and go to Acts chapter 8, and we'll see a little bit about Paul in chapter 8 and chapter 9. We'll get a little backstory <coughs> on him. I'm trying to teach you how to think through studying the Bible. If it says Paul, we get to stay as Paul, you know, same as Paul McCartney, no big deal. No, we go understand who Paul is by going through the church history and where he was. Paul's name wasn't always Paul, right? It was Saul before that. So before Paul was Paul, he was actually Saul. And we see in Acts 8 and actually a few other passages where this scene is repeated. Um, but let's just go with Acts chapter 8 verses 1 to 3. Acts chapter 8 verses 1 to 3. We see what Paul was like, his background here. We see that Saul approved of his execution. In the previous context, whose execution was this? It was the stoning of Stephen, the first martyr, uh, first man who died for um, he is literally stoned with rocks. And Paul, who was Saul at the time, approved of his execution. He was glad for it. And we see going on in Acts 1, verse 8, <coughs> and it says here, and, those, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea, Samaria, except the apostles. Verse 2, uh, a devoted man buried Stephen, and so he was 
stoned and they buried him and, and made a great lamentation over him. So many were very sad that he was stoned and that he, so we see that he was physically buried. But more about Paul or Saul here. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house by house he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So in Paul's mind, he thought Christians were wrong. And he thought he was doing the best thing, given his Jewish background, viewed the gospel of Christ as a threat, and some, um, he was putting them into prison, throwing them into prison. And so that's some of his background. But literally... We see things change really fast, so jump to the next chapter, Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 9, and we see Paul's background here. Um, Paul's life changes here. We see basically Paul's radical conversion in these nine verses. (coughs) So we see that Saul was breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound, tied up, to Jerusalem. Verse 3. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, this is Paul, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. I don't know what this is like, but it's a light from heaven, shone around him. I'm sure it was profound, and I'm sure it was bright, and I'm sure it was noticeable. And in verse 3, or excuse me, verse 4, And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So, this is a voice being addressed specifically to Saul. Why are you persecuting me? And he, Paul, still saw at this time, responds, and he said, Who are you, Lord? Who are you, Lord? And he, said, and, he, and he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. This little um, transaction of statements, Saul or Paul's acknowledgement of the Lord and what he's doing, um, doesn't seem like much here. We'll get a bigger picture of it behind the scenes. But this is where Paul's literally stopped in his tracks by these lights, or this light from heaven, and Jesus is confronting him. And we see that the confrontation is so strong that it alters things in Paul's life in a big and significant way because we see in verse 6, he says here, But rise and enter the city, and you'll be told what to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by hand and brought him into Damascus. There's a lot going on here, but I want to at least highlight the big thing. Paul is confronted by Jesus. Paul was going his direction um, in his um, passion and zeal to take down Christianity, but he's confronted by Jesus. He's blinded, and now, in one sense, as he's being blinded, he's being revealed 
who Jesus is, and we see Paul's life change and his whole direction change. And so by virtue of his direction changing, we see um, by virtue of changing of his direction, we also assume there's been a change in his life internally and in his heart. And we see a, a, victor, a bigger picture of what that looks like in Philippians chapter 4. So now come with me to Philippians chapter 4. So I'll give you a moment to get there. Um, so it's fascinating. The Bible is the best commentary. You don't need to guess like, oh, who's Paul? You don't even need to run to Wikipedia or Biblepedia. Um, it's all there. Just go to Philippians chapter 4, verse 4 through 11, and you, take, you see the same conversion experience, and now Paul is reflecting back on it, and you get insight um, <coughs> into what happened here in Acts chapter 9. And so hopefully you're there. So Philippians chapter 4, verse 4, Paul is recounting basically his whole life and how, what his mindset was. And he's essentially counting on, he's counting right here what he once put his confidence in. Um, and you see that he once put his confidence in, in merit, his merit, his worth, his value in the following. And so he says this in verse 4, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, Paul, ha- Paul is very successful in his own efforts, in his own work, in his own merit, in his own achievement. And he says, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh in comparison to him, he says, I have more. I have more confidence because I have this. And now he throws down his works righteous resume. He is circumcised on the eighth day, the proper day, um, from the people of Israel and the tribe of Benjamin. So he was privileged in that sense. Uh, Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee. He wasn't just someone who knew about the law or a Jew. He was a top-notch um, Pharisee. Uh, and he wasn't just a Pharisee that like, oh yeah, I believe in the law. He had a passion to it. So, so as to zeal, to the law, he had this extreme passion for the law. He was committed to it. He was going to follow it with all that he got. And so he, he also was a persecutor of the church. And so as to righteousness under the law, he was blameless. Literally, Paul is saying, you know, there's 613 laws. If anyone followed them well, I, I was it. He, 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 he didn't have to tiptoe around the law. He was literally saying, I followed the law. And he was really good at doing it. And so now he looks at what he did at once, and he, he has a new perspective in light of Christ, in light of the gospel, in light of what happened to him in Acts chapter 9. His whole perspective on what he once built, his reputation, his worth, his merit, before a holy God, he recognizes it totally differently. So in verse 7, he literally says, but whatever gain I had, his previous resume, I count as loss in comparison, or count as loss for the sake of Christ. He's basically saying, for the sake of Christ, for the sake of knowing and following Christ, everything I once count dear, he views it as loss now. To what degree? Well, in verse 8, indeed I count everything, 
He counts everything. I mean, today we would have said his resume would be, you know, of the most privileged person in America. He went to the highest school, got the best degrees, and he's saying this is worth no more. That degree from Harvard or Yale, he's ready. And he did, in a sense, tore it up, burn it up, and count it as what? Well, in verse 8, we see he counts everything as lost because of the surpassing knowledge of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them what? As rubbish, as dung, as poo-poo, as excrement. That's how he views what he once viewed as valuable. Now he says it's a piece of poo that, yeah, stinks and comes out in that form. In order that I may, may, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from obeying the law. This whole law and righteous thing is a big thing and a big deal because if you're going to be right with a holy God, you need to be righteous. And on a human level, you know, maybe he's kind of close, but we know our righteousness before a holy God if we consider the Sermon on the Mount, I believe chapter 5, verse 3, we are spiritually poor, spiritually impoverished. We have no righteousness of our own. We're basically spiritually bankrupt. So we're never functioning on the plus side. So instead of maybe a negative a zillion, maybe it's a negative a billion, you know, like, is that really any better? Um, before holy God, is, is nothing. it's nothing. Not, it's not a good place to be if you are bankrupt before a holy God. And so he, he recognizes knowing Christ is so much better, and he knows without a doubt now that he has the right perspective. He can't earn righteousness from the law. But that which comes from faith in Christ, the righteousness from God, that depends on faith. And so the righteousness that Paul has received is from Christ. He's by faith. We call this a transaction or exchange by placing your faith in Jesus Christ. He pays off and replaces your spiritual debt and replaces it with his righteousness, which is perfect. And so he makes you and gives you his righteous standing. So in verse 10, that I may know him, know Jesus Christ in the power of his resurrection. This is what Paul cares about. It's not his resume anymore. Um, he cares about knowing Jesus and the power of his resurrection, and that he may share in his suffering, becoming like him in his death. He, by all means possible, he says, may I attain the resurrection from the dead. And so this is Paul's perspective, and this is Paul's background. So a couple of applications real quickly. Um, the, the power of the gospel until salvation is the divine power to save, I'll say anyone and everyone. Some of us may think, you know, I grew up in church, I'm most, I know all the scripture, I, I am closer to Jesus. In one sense you are and you're not. You may be around a lot of truth and you may know it, but so did Paul, and it did him no good until he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. 
You could be in these pews week after week, but you may be no closer than the person that is rebellious and immoral and living a very immoral life. You stand in the same place before a holy God, far away outside of Christ. Once you come to Christ, you're as close as you can because he's adopted you. But I want you to know that the power of the gospel is power enough to save you. And if you did, that's a miracle in itself. And if you think of some of your friends or relatives, you're like, they're so far gone. You were once so far gone too, even if you grew up in the church. But my whole point I want to say is they're not so far gone from the grace of God, from the power of God. And you might be saying they're so far gone geographically. That's why we are called to be missionaries everywhere. Um, so some of us must go, some of us must stay. And if anyone wants to go, we want to do what we can to get them there in the right way, prepared and everything, and support it well. And that's why we partner with IMB and others, because they do it well. And the other thing I want you to see is if God can change Paul, he could change you and me. We all struggle with sin. We all um, have spiritual amnesia and going through a number of things. But God begins a good work, and He's working it in the present. Some of us, you know, show more evidence. But know that God is at work, and He's working it. And He says He'll, He promises to work it toward completion. So, Paul, that's a little bit on Paul. A little bit on his name and his background. Um, Paul was a common name um, in in Sicilia. Um, his hometown was the city of Tarsus, which means little or small. Um, this may be an indication that he was small also at birth. Paul was considered small in stature, and <clears throat> and so one um, commentator by the name of Long, Long and Necker. He says this about him, a second, second century theologian. He says, Paul was small in stature. He was bald. He had a bald head. He had crooked legs. Um, <clears throat> in, in, a, in a good state of body, his eyebrows were meeting, so he had what? A unibrow? <clears throat> uh, nose somewhat hooked, full of friendliness. And for now, he appeared like a man, and now he had a face of an angel. And so that's a little bit of Paul's stature, what he looked like, what he acted like. We also see that Paul was directed by the commission of Jesus Christ. We see in the verse 1 that he was commanded by God himself. He was under the will of God. Um, there's a couple words in the New Testament for command, and I thought it would be valuable to highlight this. John MacArthur says the following word. He said this word Paul is using here, the use of epitage, um, command meant, instead of the more uh, usual word, the theolema, meaning will, further stresses Paul's apostolic, apostolic authority. Epitage refers to a royal command a royal command from God the King of kings to him. This is not negotiable, but mandatory. 
Paul, Timothy, and the congregation at Ephesus were under the orders from the sovereign of the universe. Paul also may have chosen this stronger term because of the fake teachers in, at Ephesus who likely questioned his authority. And so that's, that's Paul. Just a little bit, a good snapshot so you can see his background. You can see why he's passionate. Why? Because all his past isn't worthless anymore? Sort of. He's passionate because he knows the truth and the truth changed his life. And so he has meaning and purpose. It's fascinating. He had zeal as a Jewish person. He also has incredible zeal as a, a gospel person, if you would. And so I would say that Paul is passionate because of the gospel. He delights in, in the God of the gospel. He's not functioning under duty like he was with the law. I mean, I just got to do this because it's, you know, bear it down. I got to obey these 613 laws so I could be righteous and earn my way to heaven. He recognizes that's not the way. And so as you think of your life, you know, how are you functioning? How are you motivated? May we delight in the Lord. May we delight in the Lord. Taste and know that he's good. May that motivate us. And so as you think of the commandments of the Lord, what's our attitude um, are these suggestions, ideas, nice ideas? Or something that, what? We are to delight in. Um, do we see God's law as a burden or a joy to follow? Do we recognize that God's law, the hope is that it would grant us freedom? And we see at the very end of verse 1 that Paul was gripped by the fact that Jesus Christ is our hope. It's his hope, but he's saying it's our hope here. It's Paul's hope is Timothy's hope. It's the church of Ephesus's hope. They have hope. And when you have hope, what? It gives you motivation to press on, right? Um, when there's no hope, you don't press on, you give up, right? When the score is over and you don't have enough points to win, there's no hope, game's over. When there's time to still play and you have the ball and you have a chance to make that last second drive or the last drive of the game and score, you have hope until at least one second's left until the last play or the bell whistles. With Jesus Christ, you have hope because he rose from the dead. And so we see a good understanding of hope that Paul is talking about in First Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 5. <clears throat> he says, Blessed be the God... And Father of Lord Jesus Christ, Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he called us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So we have a hope based off the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's a sure thing. Over 500 people witnessed him after he resurrected. So if there are news reporters or people had their iPhones, they took pictures of that and posted it online, and so everyone can see that this happened. And we see the type of hope this is, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfaded, kept in heaven for you. So this is an amazing hope that's not going to be touched. It's not going to get old. It's not going to be defiled. And we see that in verse 5, who by God's power, it is by the power of God, that this hope that's being guarded or protected or kept in various translations 
through faith for salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. This is a hope for us in Paul's contact for Paul, Timothy, and the church of Ephesus. And may this hope give us reason to labor, to press on, to endure, um, to run till the very, very end. And so, um, <clears throat> this is Paul. So, who's Timothy? So, we answered a little bit who the first person, the second person is Timothy. Who's Timothy? Timothy is Paul's recipient, the person receiving this letter. Um, he's also the pastor of the church of Ephesus, which we said. And so now we're at chapter 1, verse 2. Who is Timothy? Well, Timothy's name means one who honors God. One who honors God. And there's three passages in the Bible that kind of highlights his background. It's fascinating to know uh, Timothy's background. We see in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, Paul says, I am reminded of your sincere faith. So he's saying, Timothy, you have a sincere faith, but I'm reminded in this way. A faith that dwelt first in your grandmother, Lois, and and your mother, Eunice, and now, I'm sure, dwells also in in you as well. So Timothy had, what, godly mother and grandmother, and both of them played a huge influence in his life. And so I don't want you to underestimate the influence a grandmother and a mother plays spiritually in their child and their grandchildren. And so don't think, you know, you have no influence. You do have a tremendous influence spiritually. You can shape a young man or a young daughter's um, view of God from the very beginning by your influence, your conduct, how you relate to your son or grandson. And you, you have opportunity at the very young age to shape this. Don't just think you just throw them in the crib and give them toys and turn on the TV and get TVs in the back of your car so you just amuse them constantly, that this is going to do this. Your, 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 your kids need to experience Christ through a relationship, through you, not just the video, all right? I know videos are one of the best babysitters today, but it's not the best to use. Um, it, it may be best to you because you think, oh, good, my kid's not crying and stuff, all right? Um, God has given you as parents and grandparents to be the best parent, godly parent you can be for them. Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, we see more. Paul knows this in Timothy's life. From <clears throat> childhood, you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. This is huge. Which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Paul recognized in Timothy's life, he knew the scriptures from a young age. And so as a church, we want to come alongside parents, and as parents, we want to give you the best scriptures, our best resources, teach your kids from the very beginning what the gospel is and how to share with them the God's receptive story, um, gospel truth, catechism, question and answer, so your kids know the fact. This doesn't guarantee salvation, but at least it sets them up with who God is, who they are before the Holy God. If you don't know who you are before the Holy God, you don't know you need to repent, you don't know if you need Jesus, you're just running your hellbound race, not knowing whatever. So it's important to inform them, at least they know where they stand before a Holy God. So education is... And we all have a role in church. 
to serve the next generation. We all have a role. In chapter, Acts chapter 16, verses 1 to 3, we see a little bit more history. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. And it doesn't say if he was a believer. Maybe not. But we know that Timothy... Um, was from Lystra, according to this passage. And we know Lystra was a Roman province in Galatia, which is modern-day Turkey. We know that Timothy, what, was half Jewish from his mom and half Greek from his dad. And we know at least as much he had a Christian influence from his mother. Maybe not his father, but his father was Greek, and some say he may have died before he met Paul. We don't know that for sure, but some of the theologians put that out there. Verse 2, it says that he, referring to Timothy, he was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. So Timothy had a godly reputation of a man who believed the gospel and lived out the gospel. And then in verse 3, Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were, who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. So I think there's a little bit of missiology there. They're setting him up well, because if he's going to minister, um, it would be good to minister to Jews to be circumcised so that he would be received and accepted well in those companies. We know that Timothy was a gifted man. Uh, we know that he was called. We also know that he was young. He was considered young by Paul, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12, where Paul exhorted him, Timothy, let no one look down on your youthfulness when he was in his 30s. But, you know, when he was traveling in, in this passage in Acts 16, many scholars believe that was maybe 15 years prior, so he might have been a teenager at that time. And so <clears throat> that's a little bit about what? Timothy. That's how we find out. Where, what are, what these, who these people are like and what their backgrounds are like. So Timothy is not like Paul in many ways. Paul had this huge background of being raised as a Jew. Timothy was actually raised by at least one Christian parent. So a little different dynamics there. So a little bit more, what, what is the nature of Paul's relationship with Timothy? Well, we see in the middle of verse 2, Timothy, Paul refers to Timothy as his true child in the faith. True child in the faith. In other words, we believe that Paul <coughs> um, led Timothy to Christ and was involved with discipling him. Um, we know that this happened in, in this book, in 1 Timothy, we, but we also see sightings in 1 Corinthians 4 and 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2. So Paul led Timothy to Christ and became, <coughs> undoubtedly during his ministry in Lystra, in his first ministry, ministry journey, um, in Acts 14, um, Paul uses the word uh, genus, referring to legitimate child. He refers, versus um, muthos would be illegitimate child. So he literally views, Paul literally views Timothy as his legitimate spiritual son. And he speaks that in a very positive way. 
that you have a genuine faith, you've genuinely been adopted by God, and you are um, a son, in one sense, a child of the faith in relationship to Paul. Paul had a true faith. That was, I mean, Timothy had a true faith. It wasn't false. I mean, you saved by the grace of God. Um, and I want to point out that literally we see in this relationship for Paul and Timothy that Paul, Timothy was once lost. He had back of knowing the truth, but now he's a leader. He went from lost to leader pretty quickly. And so there's a, a methodology, a plan to disciple, as Paul related to Timothy, as they did ministry together, as they were, as Paul was intentionally equipping him to go from lost to leader. That's a huge deal. And so as a local church, it makes me think of a lot of things. Like, as a church, we need a plan to reach people for Christ. And once they come to Christ, we need a plan to help them to grow as disciples to the point that there's the leaders. And so I, I want to encourage you to make, um, to avail yourself um, to being a part of this process, that you would personally own your discipleship, that you'd read your Bible, that you would pray, you obey it, that you find yourself at least in one group for your own growth and benefit, that you would be growing, um, that you would be equipped um, and so you might be saying, you know, I've been in church for a long time, 30 years, 80 years, 90 years. I don't need to go anymore. I know it all. But there are people in those classes that are five years or one-year-old kid or a new person in Christ. They need to see how you live this out. They need to hear from you. They need to, they need to see the seasoned veteran so that the rookie would know how to grow, it up, grow up. They need, they, need, they need to see how it's done. So they need you there in equipping classes so they can learn together. They can learn from you. I would say, if you're not there, you're missing a great opportunity to disciple the next generation. And those who are there, they, they need you. They need to hear from you who have been around the block several times over. They need to learn. How are they going to learn? I mean, you put a bunch of kindergartners together for the rest of their life, the highest standard is kindergarten level. They need to know from the Christians that are 20, 30, 40, 50 years old, and some. And so I just want to put that out. Paul had a plan to get Timothy from newborn babe to being a pastor at the church of Ephesus. And so, how did this happen? There's human effort and there's God effort. And I just want to point out God's effort, God's means. We see in the last part of verse 2, there's grace, there's mercy and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ. So these are the divine influence, these are the divine means in which Paul, Timothy, and the church of Ephesus were impacted by. Grace is God's unmerited favor, love, kindness that he extends toward sinners. It's not deserved, it's unmerited, given by God. Mercy is withholding of judgment. Um, and God extends that to each one of us. It's withholding giving consequences. It's withholding giving consequences right away to allow to allow um, grace to do its work. And so the Lord is merciful in so many ways. 
as believers and as non-believers. He's merciful. The Lord uh, grants peace. There's a couple of ways to look at peace. Every person born, we are born not with a clean slate. We are actually born as enemies against the holy God. And we are not at peace with God. We're literally at war with the holy God the day we're born. And so what Christ did on the cross is he made an opportunity that we might have peace with him and we trust in him. And so by trusting in him, we are no longer at war with God. We're no longer at enemy with God. We've become a child of God, a friend of God. And that, that's where we come peace. And so in the Christian life, God offers us what? Peace that surpasses all understanding as we walk with him, as we know and love through his word and through his spirit. And so all three of these graces are for the church of Ephesus. All three of these graces are what? For us here today. For our good. And for his glory. And so we are going to face stress, hardship, difficulties, trials. But guess what? There's ample grace and there's ample mercy and there's ample peace for every one of us. And it's fascinating that Paul speaks to his church not in the sense like, I have all this. At the very end, this little pronoun makes all the difference. He says, our Lord. All these graces have been given from the Father and we are going to submit to him as our Lord. Paul is not the head of this church and nor is Timothy, even though he's a pastor. They recognize that Jesus Christ is the head of his church. They acknowledge his headship, his leadership within the church. And so, three, four applications quickly, and we'll bring up Dylan. Uh, be saved by faith in the gospel. If you haven't done that, do so soon. If you know friends that haven't, urge them to do so soon, too. Um, number two, be radically transformed by the gospel. Number three, be making disciples who make disciples. If you are a child of God, a follower of Jesus Christ, you show and demonstrate that by making disciples. If you're not making disciples, you're just a Christian in name or title. A true Christian makes disciples. Um, true Jedi makes other Jedis, right? You know, if you know Kung Fu, you teach other people Kung Fu, you know Christ, you teach other people For Christians! you're a disciple, you make disciples. You don't just church hop. You don't just watch all your different preachers online forever on end and think, I just know it all. I know, you know, Platt's thoughts and Sproul's thoughts. That's nice. But you still got to make disciples. It's not what you know. The end goal of being trained disciples is not what you know. I mean, you can just say, I, I know Greek. I know how to make disciples. No. You know discipleship by, by, by making disciples. That's the only way I can put it. You, you actually make the disciples. You can't say, a soccer, you're, I'm a soccer player unless you're actually playing soccer. <laughs> you can't say, I play football unless you actually play football. You can't say, a plumber unless you plumb pipes. Right? It makes sense. But the Christian, Christian thing is weird. A lot of us say we just know this stuff. Do it. And speaking to myself, lastly, man, God gives us so much grace, love, mercy, peace, to carry this all out. And we're going to be reminded of this right now as Dylan comes up. Father, we thank you so much for...
the church of Ephesus. And really, it's a very popular book that has fed your churches from many generations. And so, Father, I do pray, Lord, that it would feed us today as Paul ministered to Timothy, as Timothy ministered to the church of Ephesus, as the pastors here minister to the church here. May we feast well on your truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.